we're fatter than ever as a result of all the passive sitting around and being on screen. We are lonelier than ever. You look at the actual list of public health issues and problems, and COVID's the least of them. The, the biggest problems are we're dying both physically and emotionally inside because one of the most shocking things I, I discovered in the last three years was this study that pointed out that you know you and I were going to high five or fist bump or give a side hug to 25 people today, that's physical human contact, but our iPhone is going to get 2,500 touches. And you think if you flip that, people would feel pretty good. People would be yeah, like, yeah, wow, yeah. I feel like a rock star because people want to be around and be in my physical presence. Now it's just the opposite. Now physical presence is a threat. Hello, and welcome back to the Great Main Podcast. Over the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about the dangers of digital media. Most of us would admit to spending a little bit too much time online, but virtual reality is starting to impinge on true reality in ways that could spell spiritual death for our minds and souls. Today's guest is Reed Shushart, a professor of media at Wheaton College. In his upcoming book, Presence in the Age of Absence, Reed dives into what he calls the seven vices of virtual life. With things like the immersive metaverse, gaming, and isolated lifestyles becoming the norm, is it possible that once we invest more in our online selves than our real selves, there won't be any real life to return to? Let's tune in to my colleague John Severance and Reed Chouchart on part one of this eye-opening conversation. So, so hey, Reed, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I know you've been working on a book for, for a while here. The Ten years. <laughs> and can you give me the title again? Well, it keeps... The title is... <laughs> it keeps changing. The, the subtitle is the same, but current, <laughs> currently the title, the working title is Presence in the Age of Absence. Subtitle, Confronting the Seven Vices of the Virtual Life. Wow, that's cool. That seems very timely. So I, I know that you're, you're a professor of media at Wheaton College here in the area, and you have formed some opinions on digital media. You teach about digital media and its impact on the world, its growing impact on the world. So that's a bit of what the book's about in general. So if we can open up and if you could describe your overall position on digital media, I think it's important to define the term digital media. Is it social media? Is it Facebook? Is it film? Is it YouTube? Yeah. So the first thing is just the understanding the taxonomy that media ecology presents, which is either a four-stage or a five-stage uh, version of human history. And the comedian Robin Williams actually defined it pretty well. He said, he said it's, it's, when, it's all, when all your appliances talk to each other about you. <laughs> so, you know, you say, open the freezer door. And the freezer says, not so fast, fat, so I've been talking to the scale. <laughs> or as uh, one writer put it, the, the content of digital media is the entire externalization of human consciousness. So it's everything we do and everything that we've done now accessed through you know, a portable device in your pocket, which is a sort of form of personal um, omnipresence, but not yet omnipotence. <laughs> so what is dangerous about digital media? Well, it's just, it's a separation. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all sort of a spiritual allegory. It's a separation ultimately of, of body and spirit or mind and body, if you want to put it in secular terms. But, you know, scripturally, what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. And so in the Old Testament, when your word is your bond and a man is only as good as his word is 
you know, if you saw him, then you heard him speak, then that's, that's the real man, right? That, that, you know, said was done. And you were told in that cultural context, in that communication environment to always be very clear in your speech, to always mind your P's and Q's, to always watch what you said, because your reputation entirely depended on people perceiving that your, your mind and spirit were, were in unity. What happens when you digitally mediate everybody and you, and you mass mediate that and you, and you create a planet of 7 billion disembodied souls then now everybody has the job of public relations for their avatar self. So I have me here in the room, but, you know, the real me has nothing compared to the Facebook me. The Facebook me, you know, is a a picture from above. It's usually several pounds lighter and skinnier. It's usually the idealized self, right? It's the curated me. And so I become unconsciously but very definitely necessarily narcissistic, I become necessarily impatient, I become necessarily, I, I take on these seven vices in order to kind of do the job of digital mediation. And then I start to look at my life and go, oh, that would make a great post. And, and I start to do things, whether they are worth doing or not, simply by worthy, you know, is this, is this an Instagram worthy location to take a picture? Is this a TikTok worthy place to do a video? Is this the right location to do a selfie? So I start seeing reality as its value in relationship to my secondary or digital life. So in, in, in general, though, do you see digital media as creating two identities, your virtual self and your actual self or your physical self or your whatever incarnate self? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think of it as those, you know, the, the, who was the band in the 80s that said, you know, we're nobody here, but we're huge in Japan. <laughs> You know, I know Big in Japan was a popular song. Yeah, Big in Japan. So so the idea that, you know, you don't know me, but I'm a god in a world of Warcraft. Yeah, my and, other car is a Tesla. Yeah, that that this idea that you can you can be a nobody and a somebody at the same time. I, I don't I don't see that being sort of good for the individual or good for collectively for the culture. Mm-hmm. Where we're all we're all kind of walking around and sort of pretending to interact, but where we really come alive is is in those little narrow spaces where, you know, we're the expert or we're the king or we're the queen or we're the, you know, the big in Japan person. <laughs> when, when you look at sort of being a disembodied self, right? So that means you're maybe emphasizing the spirit or our powers of, of being somewhere as opposed to being present here where we physically are. But I think that isn't there something good about that instinct? When we when we go to pray, we close our eyes and we go all the way back to Jerusalem and we, according to St. Ignatius, have to go and live in the, the scenes. And if we're deep in prayer, we're not really present. Something could be happening around us. We don't notice it. When we read a novel, we're sort of in our own private universe, maybe in our own narrative metaverse, if you will. The medium might be a book versus Oculus, right? But isn't there something um, positive in the wanting to picture yourself differently than you are or go to another place than where you physically are, you know, in your imagination to, you know, ex- experience more than what your incarnate self is limiting you to? Yeah, and I, I think that's actually a really, it's a very fine, subtle point. It's a very important question. And... I don't have an official, you know, certain answer for it. I just have some sort of speculations. When, when you're reading a book, when you're hearing a story, you are doing 
what God made your imagination to do, which is your imagining being in that other location. But I think there's a, a sort of desacralization of the real that happens when you actually quantify that in a specific ISP. So when Paul's caught up in the third heaven in the New Testament, you know, when every time I read that, I go, man, I wonder where that is. <laughs> but if I go to paulsthirdheaven.com and it's there, right, it's, it's, some, it's suddenly, well, that's not quite, I think, what he meant. So in that same sense, you know, when, when you're praying, you know, is there a frequency that God sends and transmits and receives prayers on when two or more are gathered together? You know, it's not clear if two or more people are gathered on a Zoom call and they pray if that's an effective prayer, because they're not actually in person. It's not actually clear if you're praying with somebody over the phone if that's actually an effective prayer. And I'm not saying it's not. It, I'm saying I don't know. And so it's a thing I think we do unconsciously, assuming, well, of course, if we, if we get right down to the actual nub of communication, when you're communicating with somebody, you know, according to certain scholars, it's about 87% of the communication that are the words you say. Sorry, it, it's, it's, it's 87%, um, it's 13% that are, are the words you say. The other 87% are not the words you say, but are the physical presence, the gesture, the inflection, the body movements, the, the, the facial um, movements. So the actual sending and transmission and reception of meaning is really, really, really diminished, just statistically speaking, when you're disembodied. And I mean, here's a silly but small example, but very real. One thing I discovered during the COVID lockdowns when I was Zoom teaching is the one thing you cannot do on Zoom, no matter how hard you try, is you can't give direct eye contact to your students or vice versa. Because to look directly into the camera looks to them like you're giving them direct eye contact and vice versa. But you can't see them responding to your direct eye contact because to see them, you have to look down at the screen, not into the camera. And so you literally can't look in both directly into the camera and directly at their face at the same time. So seeing their face and then seeing their reaction to your direct eye contact, it's actually physically impossible to do that. Now, probably you know, the next iteration of laptop will solve that problem. <laughs> but currently that's an, an interesting limitation. And so the teachable moment in the classroom, right, when a student says something and the professor responds, that, you know, a conversation is going in the classroom and suddenly somebody gets it and the light goes on, right? That's, that's the moment of eye contact. That's the moment of, oh, okay, you understood what I was saying. You understood what that meant. And it was amazing how not just dead the Zoom classroom was, but it was amazing how pretty quickly you could tell who was actually trying to be in the class versus who was trying to pretend they were in class, but was actually putting your Zoom screen on a picture-in-picture -picture while they were watching Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in other words, they were enduring the illusion of class while actually managing the time going by, by, by you know, binge-watching whatever their favorite show was. Yeah. McLuhan put it this way about disembodiment, that, that when you're on the air or on the, on the network or on the airwaves, you're somewhere between sender and sent, right? You're neither here nor there, and you're kind of free-floating in space, and that's not ever what you were meant to do as a primary habituation. So, you know... While, while the medieval monks might have, might have, and, and scripture might say, pray without ceasing, you can always have that mental habit 
of praying without ceasing while you're physically working in the field or physically, you know, washing the dishes or physically, you know, doing your job. That's not the same as now spending 12 hours a day on screen sort of, you know, in a still passive state, but somewhere between center and center. So it's a bifurcation that I think is, well, we know, I and mean, it's bad for our health. We get less sleep now than ever before, like 6.5 hours as opposed to 10 from 100 years ago. We're fatter than ever as a result of all the passive sitting around and being on screen. We are lonelier than ever. I mean, you, you, you look at the actual list of public health, you know, issues and problems, and COVID's the least of them. The, the biggest problems are we're dying both physically and emotionally inside because one of, my, one of the most shocking things I, I discovered in the last three years was this study that came out and pointed out that, you know, you and I were going to high five or fist bump or give a side hug to 25 people today. That's physical human contact. But our iPhone is going to get 2,500 touches. And you think, you know, if you flip that, people would feel pretty good. People would be like, wow, I feel like a rock star because people, you know, want to be around and and be in my physical presence. Now it's just the opposite. Now physical presence is a threat. Mm. And and it's interesting. I think think COVID has in a certain way emphasized and enhanced that. So a student walks in with earphones on sunglasses on, a hat on, and a COVID mask on. And you realize all five of their sensorial inputs are covered. And what it's most analogous of is, you know, a suit for an extravehicular walk in space. You know, it's a space suit the person is wearing. But instead of going to outer space, this particular person is going to inner space. And that's where they live now. Because reality is the thing to which they respond with the universal youthful lament, I can't even. And so... When Olivia Rodrigo sings, it's brutal out there. Mm-hmm. What, what's so brutal out there? I mean, like, in reality, she has the greatest wealth and health and opportunities for education and travel and anything in, in, in all of human history. But what's brutal out there is just, just coping with reality and the gap between my mediated, curated self and my actual self, right? So what she's lamenting in that song is, you know, she didn't get enough likes on her social media posts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so living with the results of that gap is, I think, what's making the young, among other things, so depressed. Yeah, it's, that's really interesting analogy, inner space, right? Yeah, I guess if their hand's in their pocket or they're wearing gloves, then, they're, then their sense of touch is <laughs> gone too. You know, I, I, I see these kids, these young kids, where they'll be interacting with their peers. So they'll be physically present, but their iPhone is part of the conversation, whether they're snapping a photo to share with someone who's not physically there capturing the moment for others who weren't there to enjoy or even almost almost like um living more in the virtual world and the physical world is just a it's almost showpiece it's an exhibit the virtual world is primary yeah so we get together in person so i can show you the latest memes that i think are funny on my screen and then you know at the end of the night you go well why do we have to get together to do that you could have just like emailed them to me you know this yeah, is there's yeah, a weird yeah. like one of the, one of the one of the best <clears throat> memes of the last five years, I think, was pointing out, "Hey, does anybody want to go to a different location to stare at our phone all night?" <laughs> and and there's a certain you know refreshing honesty about that. that yeah. When Chick Fil A and Mastercard both created campaigns to, "Hey, put your phone in the box, the Chick Fil A box, and if you can leave it there the whole dinner, we'll give you free dessert." <laughs> so when businesses are publicly saying, "Hey," It's more fun to have you here when you're actually here rather than physically here, but emotionally absent, psychologically yeah, yeah, absent. Yeah. You know it's a problem. 
So let's get into the actual vices. So you say there are seven vices of the virtual life. The seven, as I have them now, are addiction, impatience, desensitization, goallessness, narcissism, ignorance, and disembodiment. And the the first six all are sort of an outgrowth of the seventh one, the final one, disembodiment. In other words, it's that it's that separation of matter and spirit that is the driver, I think, of all the others. Desensitization is a sort of a psychological desensitization, as well as a physical desensitization, as well as a sort of emotional or, if you want to say, spiritual desensitization. Do you remember in 1979 when Pink Floyd sang Comfortably Numb? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right? I have become comfortably numb. That was a life too, you know, indulgent and medicated with, with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And the numbness, the singer perceives, oh, this is a problem because I'm, I'm comfortable in my numbness. By 2010, the neologism of the year was apocalypse fatigue. And apocalypse fatigue was, you know, different and worse than REM singing, it's the end of the world as I know it, as we know it, and I feel fine. <laughs> apocalypse fatigue was, in 2010, the, the young were saying, you know, we don't know if it's going to end in biblical apocalypse or global warming catastrophe, but either one, we're sick of hearing about it. We're, we're, we're exhausted. And apocalypse fatigue was a, was a play off of empathy fatigue, which was as a result of too many mass shootings, psychologists had noticed, oh, people can't be empathic beyond a certain limit. And so they actually, it's not that they don't care, it's that they've exhausted their resources and their ability to care. And so, you know, did you hear about the new shooting? Well, by the time The Joker came out, the movie The Joker with Joaquin Phoenix a couple of years ago, but <laughs> when that movie came out, that was actually the month in, in American history that the number of mass shootings reached greater than one a day. And so that's sort is that, of... A, is, that, is there a coincidence there? It was an ironic coincidence to me because the film is set in the 70s. And, you know, the, the point I was making about it was that it was a documentary about the actual sort of mass indifference we have to the, to the, to the slaughter all around. And so when a school shooting happens and it doesn't even make headline news, there's a sort of cultural or mass version of empathy fatigue. You get desensitized to the tragedy of reality. You get desensitized to the increasing desperation and, and warning signs of ill uh, health and, and, of, and of lack of civility and public discourse and, and just people getting along. But you also get desensitized on a sort of psychological scale. So David Zweig wrote about fiction depersonalization syndrome, that, that under digital media conditions, everything we perceive, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, we perceive it the same way through the same medium. And as a result, it's all fiction to us. This is what Michael Moore meant when he said we live in uh, fictional times. And so it's only documentary films that can tell the truth and, and, and help us to come back to the nonfiction reality. So fiction depersonalization syndrome meant you started to perceive that everything was fiction. And then, you know, by two or three years ago, this is what Bo Burnham means when he sings about derealization, that if you're spending 12 hours a day on a screen, either your laptop or your television or your, your you know, cell phone screen, then what's happening is an actual figure ground reversal, all right, or what Malcolm Gladwell calls a tipping point, where all of a sudden now you actually perceive the real world isn't real. 
and what I perceive as reality is actually on the screen. And this thing that's presenting itself in front of me is actually an obstacle and an annoyance and an irritation. And I think that's one of the, I think it's very understudied, but I think it's one of the big drivers of why everything's so touchy and politicized and everything's such a trigger to everyone these days about, about everything. Yeah. Everybody that, wants to just go back to their cocoon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Their... Having to deal with real people in real time and space is literally a task too hard and too high to, to cope with. So what happens when we develop the metaverse, you know, being led by Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and we go further and further into the virtual world, we actually create more than an avatar. We may find ourselves primarily inhabit that virtual world is more, more, there's more going on. There's more people there. There's uh, greater and greater reality in that world and less reality in the world we actually live in. I think that's just the fulfillment of what McLuhan said in the 60s when, when he said, when you, when you put a satellite out into space and turn the camera around and take a picture of the Earth from space, then what happens is the Earth itself becomes the content of the medium of the satellite. And as soon as you do that, he said, you, you make the whole world a proscenium stage and you make everything that happens on it a play, an act. And so it makes all of us into actors. And in the metaverse, you will be emotionally exhausted from the fact that you're now always having to be on stage. You know, in other words, if I, if I go on Facebook and my average user window experience is open, it's six hours a day, but I'm really attending to it two to three hours a day. That's, that's a real time drain and a, and a time consumption. And the original media, you know, scholars were pointing out, oh, that's good because that's, that's two to three hours that you're not watching television, right? Which, remember, in the 80s was called the boob tube and it's going to make you brain dead. So this is going to be better and it's going to increase participatory democracy and, you know, expansion of knowledge and, you know, freedom was going to reign everywhere as a result of this. So <laughs> I think if you want to see what's going to happen with a metaverse, the best place to look is science fiction. So, you know, the original Matrix movie does a pretty good job of covering that. The 2009 Bruce Willis film, Surrogates, I think, does a really good job of, of kind of giving the logical conclusion to the metaverse. And some of the episodes of Black Mirror, I think, also kind of show where that road goes. So I, I've never seen Surrogates, so can you, can you do a spoiler alert there? And- sure, Surrogates, is, it, was, it was really well done, but I, it, I don't think it did that well at the box office. But Bruce Willis is in the future world. It, it, was, it was originally a, an anime comic book um, that they made a movie of. But Bruce Willis is living in a world in which reality has become so dangerous that everybody has an AI robot avatar not not an avatar that's on screen only, but an actual physical avatar that goes out into the world to represent them. So that in the real world, if you get a disease or you get shot or you, you encounter some physical danger, then it's just your avatar that gets shot and killed. You yourself are fine and safe at home to, you know, carry on. And then you just repair your avatar. So what, what, what is that trying to say? <laughs> well, it's, it's trying to say, you know, here's, here's, the, here's the ultimate separation of, of matter and spirit. And the punchline of the movie, the point of the movie, without, without giving away the plot points, is simply, this is what it means to be walking dead. This is what it means to be a zombie, to be, to be alive but dead. People forget that the actual medical and legal definition of death, is, or theological definition of death, is the separation of matter and spirit, of mind from body. So, you know, this is Adam's problem, is, well, if we are 
built to live forever, but because of choices we make, we die, right? Then Christ's death and resurrection is, is the solution to that, and it reunites matter and spirit forever. The only way to spiritually overcome that, and, and this is getting into the kind of heavy theology of it, is, is to create a world in which you seduce an entire species into a state of spiritual death by separating mind from mind from the spirit, matter from spirit and mind from body. So that it's 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 terrible. It's horrible. But it's kind of idealized, right? And so like my house is a mess, but on Instagram it looks like Martha Stewart's, mm-hmm. right? My my life is a mess and more chaotic now than ever before in human history. But boy, if you look at my social media pictures, it looks great. And so there's this... I'm a to-do hacker, right? I'm you know, there's, a, this yeah, weird, yeah. there's this weird satisfaction of having, you know, your stuff and your life look like a museum piece. And so you are literally curating these moments and curating these perfect little, you know, elements that really are like, ah. So people look at it and go, oh, I want that for my life because mm-hmm. that's not perfect enough. Right, that's a weird place to live as a, as a kind of normal thing. They're exhausted because they're dealing with the emotional consequences of all this fallout between the virtual and the real, and they're exhausted because they they don't they they can't sleep because they go to sleep anxious and they wake up anxious, and so, you know, hundred years ago when T. S. Eliot says we're distracted from distraction by distraction, you could just well put those distractions away. But now the distraction is actually your life. You, you can't put it away. Yeah, that's you know. right. <laughs> so I want to go back into this desensitization. And you talked about the sense of a, a apocalypse fatigue where now we know everything that's going on in the world. And it's so overwhelming that we're obsessed. We're freaking out. We're checking news. We're sending texts. We're, did you hear? Did you hear? You know, here's the latest. It's worse than I think. And you made a really good point that has a way of overwhelming us and distracting us away from the more manageable problems in our much smaller domain of the world that God's asked us to, to, to work in. And how does that not only overwhelm you, I think that's obvious, but then what's the impact of actually almost disempowering you to, to be a problem solver in your own local domain? Yeah, I, th- I think it overwhelms you and numbs you and, and makes you passive in the sense that I, I, I can't give you the citation, but but there was a study, I don't know, a dozen or so years ago, that the average human in human history was, was meant to know and deal with and handle the problems of about 100 to 150 people. That just, just living in your village, just, you know, working with and knowing the people in your immediate surrounding, that was a full life because just remembering their names, remembering their birthdays, remembering, you know, the, the, the events and, and, you know, working and praying and, and helping, being, a, being an active member of your society was, that was a full life. Now, you know, average Facebook user has something like 373 friends, or I forget the number, but it's, but it's in the 300s. And you can't actually know that many people in terms of actually managing and having a regular daily or weekly or monthly serious, real, intimate, you know, friendship with them. So how many times have you gotten a, a notice or an email from somebody that says, hey, happy birthday? And you know, this person doesn't know me. Mm-hmm. This person doesn't care about me. That's auto-generated anyway. Yeah. Click, this, click this, send if you want to yeah. say happy birthday. This, this person got a, a message notification from the system, from the algorithm that said, hey, it's John's birthday. Don't forget to say happy birthday. So I will, I will use my forgetfulness and the, you know, the digital tool of remembrance to pretend I care. And so in a weird way, 
it's nice to get, but it would have been better if they'd never sent it, you know, because mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. insincere. Yeah. yeah so it, sure. cre- it creates that world. But the other issue, I think, is when, when you're overwhelmed with that much care, it becomes a form and a necessary form of self-care to shut it out. So I can't, I can't handle all this information. I can't handle all this sorrow. I can't handle all this, these burdens. So no, I'm not going to go to my aunt's funeral. And you go, wait a minute, that, that's your aunt, right? That's your mother's sister. You can't, you can't skip that. And then people have to be told, oh, oh, that, that one matters. That one can't. Okay, I, I guess I do have to go to my aunt's funeral, you know. So Can I zoom in? Yeah. Can I zoom in? Yeah, right. <laughs> Unfortunately, now you can. So, so it makes you really passive. And, and, the, and the passivity, I think, is part of the desensitization where instead of being the active initiator and stimulus in the world that the world responds to, it makes you the passive receptor and you respond reflexively instead of reflectively. And you become essentially infantilized. You become essentially like a baby responding to with emotional, you know, gurgles and coos and grunts and cries to, to the stimulus the world is sending you. And then most of your, most of your actual coping mechanism is managing the, overflow of stimuli that you're receiving. And so just coping with the daily influx of 34 gigabytes a day that is, you know, the kind of the 21st century average of information becomes literally a form of self-care. So, you know, what, what do you do all day? And people will tell you honestly, well, actually what I, what I do all day is I, I, I have a, you know, fire extinguisher and I put out small fires and if, if they approach and get really big, and I, I really, you know, put those out. But if it's not, if it's not on fire, and I don't have to put it out, I ignore it. Mm-hmm. Or a colleague says, well, I, I leave my life like a butterfly in a hurricane, right? Which is to say, the information environment is the hurricane, and I'm the butterfly, and I'm, I'm literally buffeted by the winds. Mm-hmm. So when, you, when you're in that situation, you know, it's, it's a threat. It's, a, it's an actual just getting up and going out and facing the day becomes an actual psychological challenge. But so you get... You get massive increase in failure to launch in, in what the, the literature calls emerging adulthood. What about narcissism? You said that's another vice of the virtual life. One of the, one of the things about these seven vices is I used to think these were the unintended consequences of the medium. If you do this, well, then this will be a side effect, you know, an unwitting side effect, a side effect you don't want and don't know about, but once you call attention to it, it, it it'll, you know, you'll see it. I think in reality, the more I've looked at the data and more I've reflected on it, I think the actual engagement in the medium is those vices. And by that, I mean, you know, you can't take a selfie without being self-focused, right? You can't have an iPhone without it being all about I, without it being all about me. And there is, a, there is an unconscious element. And this, this actually does uh, go back to something very insightful that Marshall McLuhan said, which was that all media has this narcissizing effect in the sense that he said narcissus was a form of narcosis, which is it, it numbed you to the awareness of what it was doing precisely in the way that narcissus was numbed to the awareness of his situation. So people think, oh, narcissus was the Greek myth about the boy that fell in love with himself. And McLuhan points out, no, that's exactly the opposite of what happened. In the actual myth of narcissus, narcissus sees his own reflection in a pool of water and it's specifically and precisely and exclusively because he doesn't recognize himself as the image. 
He doesn't, he sees it and he says, oh, what a handsome boy. But he doesn't realize that's his himself, that he bends down to kiss it and then falls in the water and drowns. So in the actual clinical diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, there's nine characteristic traits. And if you have five or more, you, you, you get this diagnosis. So the, the, the awareness is, is everything, but it's not narcissism if you're aware of it. So one of the sort of tragic, ironic, but you can't make this up kind of data points on narcissism is, I think it was 2015, it was the first year that they reported that there were more selfie deaths in 2015 than shark attack deaths. Really? Yeah. And What, and what, what is a selfie death? A selfie death is where you're taking a selfie in a dangerous place and I think it was 2012 that the Russian government actually put out a public health pamphlet and brochure and said, here's, here's the 15 selfies, you know, you shouldn't be taking because these are too risky. So don't take a selfie in front of an oncoming train. Don't, <laughs> don't take a selfie on the, outs- on the outside of a tall building. Don't take a selfie over a volcano. Because often what happens is, you know, you get excited to get this amazing shot and then you lose your grip and you fall and you die. So there are now always, i.e. we now live in a world in which there are always more selfie deaths than shark bite deaths. But what's the number one selfie death that happens? I didn't know what it was, so I looked. Do you know what it is? Drowning. It's drowning. Wow. It's exactly that. It's, it's people taking a selfie on a bridge, over a river, over a body of water, and then losing their grip, falling in, and not knowing how to swim, they drown. Wow. So there's a very strange irony to the fact that this this myth is now literal it's a it's a myth made real in that sense and you know that's worth knowing if you're a young person like don't do that that's it's you know it's a a dangerous thing so in in american driving right it's now about 23 to 25 percent depending on the year of traffic accidents and thus fatalities that are caused by not cell phones but caused by distracted driving Mm-hmm. And the Department of Transportation has quantified this very specifically. There's three types of distraction. Visual distraction, where your eyes aren't on the road. Manual distraction, where your hand isn't on the wheel. Or mental or cognitive distraction, where your mind isn't on the fact that you're driving. It's somewhere else. Well, of course, the smartphone represents all three of these uh, distractions. It represents all three of those threats. So there's a very real sense in which, you know, of the 40,000 deaths that happened in, I think, 2017, that about 9,000 and something of them were caused by the smartphone. So one thing I tell my students and my own children is, okay, I can't, I can't take your phone from you. I can't persuade you to not have one of these things. But if that's actually going to kill a quarter of the people on the road this year, then get a stick shift car. And it's interesting. That's actually a piece of advice that some people actually take because – for some reason, for guys, driving a stick shift is like a sign of like credibility. <laughs> it's like street cred. But, uh, you know, you can't have your hand on the wheel and on the stick shift, you need a third hand to, 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 to be on your cell phone at the same time. So someone would figure it out, though. Well, once you're in fifth gear, yeah, people get back <laughs> on their phone. So there is, you know, some of the book does have practical takeaways and, and, and advice like that. But in, in every case, it's simply an attempt to get you to be aware of it. The, the curating of the self, right? You're not, you're not curating somebody else's life online. You're curating your own life. The other big place where the narcissism shows up is in relationships. And this is, you know, part of that chapter is that, that relational compatibility used to be based on the Adam and Eve model or in Greek mythology, the, the hermaphrodite model, where 
the twin soul is actually born as one, right? And Eve is taken out of Adam, and then they become one flesh. Or the hermaphrodite, you know, the twin souls are separated at birth, and you wander the world looking for your twin soul, and you know you found each other when you see, ah, opposites attract, right? You're a male to my female. You like country music, and I like jazz music, and we have so much to learn from each other and give each other because we're not identical. The modern relationship on the internet, on the virtual life, is based on whether it's a religious or a non-religious dating app site. So you go on the dating app and you answer three questions or 30 questions or 300 questions. But the algorithm's assumption underneath all of those dating apps is the same, which is we're going to find you the perfect mate. And we define the perfect mate as the person who's answered these same questions as close to your answers as possible. So in the old world of the hermaphrodite model, right, which, which I would call the, the altruistic model or the other model, I like you and I fall in love with you because you're so different than me. And that interests me. Now in the new model, I fall in love with you because you remind me so much of me. Yeah. In 2011, it was pointed out by, by lawyers that in, in 50% of divorce cases, Facebook was cited as among the evidence. And so there's a sort of weird narcissistic, mo- narcissistic model going on with online dating that is, it, it's almost to the point where you, you might say, you know, those who, those who, you know, hook up on online dating will also you know, end their relationship on, by, by online dating. Because there's always this idea that, well, when you get into the actual messy particulars of the specific person you start dating or even marry, then if it doesn't work out and they become too difficult in your head, there's an app that, that asks 3,000 questions. I, I bet I could find the perfect partner that really was just literally another version of me. And so it's hard to remember, you know, when Walker Percy says, the smallest hole you can bury your head in is the self that actually marrying a male or female version of your own self is really hell. It's actually a nightmare. And we actually know this because there was a guy, people marry weird things in the world we live in. A guy married his television. A guy married, you know, his anime doll. One guy married himself. And it was, I think, less than a year later, he divorced. He said it was really hard to keep those vows. <laughs> <laughs> is your avatar kind of your, your reflection, your better looking self that you fall in love with? Yeah, for sure. You could lose your own identity, right? Your own life in that virtual version of yourself. Yeah. I mean, look at the rise of like cosplay. That, that's, that's an interesting phenomenon where, well, this is fun. But then it's also like pushing into the world of like, well, actually, I want to I actually be my avatar. And so now I'm going to get plastic surgery. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have permanent makeup. I'm going to do all these things where I can actually inhabit this fantasy narrative and be a sort of idealized self, like like these girls that become Barbie dolls. Wow. So I think I think it's it, it's threatening in the sense that when it presents an idealized self, that actually you know you say, "Oh, I can I can reach for that." Then, but in the in the exact same sense of narcissism, i.e., you're 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 about to drown just as you feel like you're about to have your life's highest fulfillment. You know, you, you think you're falling in love and kissing the perfect partner when in fact you're about to die. And so I think that's the actual threat of narcissism. Well, this conversation is just getting started. And the next installment goes even deeper into some of the consequences of investing too much of ourselves in the digital world. Thanks for listening. And we hope to see you again soon as we continue to discern our path to greatness and ordinary life. 